So what she read this morning, you're going to see, is kind of a continuing uh, issue that happens with the, with the patriarchs, right? In, in Scripture, we see that Abraham and Lot, they had too many uh, possessions, too large of herds and, and flocks that they needed to separate, and we're going to see that uh, again this morning <clears throat> in this passage of Scripture. We're going to be talking about the God of grace as we look at Genesis chapter 36, verses 1 to 8. And I want to begin with this illustration this morning. If you're familiar with Genesis 36, you know that it's nothing but a list of descendants of Esau, their names, their wives, their children, their flocks, their herds. There were so many of them that they had to leave Canaan, cross the Jordan, and go to their own country called Edom, which is another name for Esau. In the ancient Near East, a man's wealth was measured in three ways, by the number of his children, his flocks and herds, and the land he possessed. Esau had all three of those things in spades. By any standard, Genesis 36 tells us that he was one of the wealthiest men who ever lived. He even had his own country. But remember what God says next about Esau. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Isn't that interesting? What does that tell us in Genesis 36? Why does God, through the Holy Spirit, go to the trouble of including this list of Esau's descendants that also boasts their wealth? This illustrator goes on and says, I think two great truths emerge from Genesis 36. Number one, if this is how God treats those, who, who he, those he really hates, he truly is a good and gracious God. And number two, you would best not mistake material blessing for spiritual blessing. And so as we think about that, you know, ah, Judy and I have had to do some moving on in our lives. We've had to, to, to go from place to place. When I served with Child Evangelism Fellowship, God moved me two different times. I started as local director in for Hardin and Hancock counties in Ohio. God provided a young man as a summer missionary that took my place as local director when I stepped in up to become state director. And God has used him to take the local ministry far beyond what I had imagined. It went from being the Hardin and Hancock County chapters to the greater Finley chapter. So it was more than just two counties. And most recently, it's now the West Central chapter in Ohio, serving multiple uh, counties in West Central Ohio. So he's taken it far beyond anything that I had envisioned, and I'm praising the Lord for that. After serving as state director for two years, they asked me to come serve as the associate director of finance and administration for the USA Ministries Department at the World Headquarters for Child Evangelism Fellowship. God once again provided an incredible state director to replace me in Ohio, and he and his wife have taken that ministry in Ohio far beyond what I had envisioned. Now, God had used me in both of those uh, local chapter and the state, dire uh, state director position as a state office, and I think, uh, I truly believe that God moved me for two purposes. First, it was to use my gifts and abilities in the state office of CEF of Ohio and the USA Ministries Department at the world headquarters. I have a certain bit of gifting and administration, and so God was moving me into those positions to help establish certain things so that uh, the next uh, people that would take my place could step into something that was working well, and they could take it far beyond where I had ever imagined. Second, I think that to accomplish his plan and purpose for the local chapter in the state office in Ohio, he had to move me out. I had completed what God had wanted me to do in those local chapter and state office, and it was time for him to move me on. I think he's done that multiple times in my life. 
And so there are probably people here today who have experienced the same kind of movement. Perhaps it was movement within the same company. Other times it's movement to a different company. It can be movement within the same community or state, and at other times it can be movement to another community or state. Some of us have experienced movement from one church to another so we can use our gifts and abilities for his glory and so he can accomplish his plan and purpose in the previous church. <clears throat> movement doesn't always have to be negative, right? Sometimes the movement can seem painful at the time, but with time we realize that God was what God was trying to accomplish. God cares about us and wants what's best for us. He is a gracious God that blesses even those who choose not to follow him. And what we're going to see from this passage today is that God cares for all people. Even Esau, who was not the covenant carrier, he was not the chosen son um, of Isaac, that was Jacob. But we're going to see how God still blessed Esau. So let's look at verse 1. Well, let's pause for prayer. Let's do that first. Lord, we just come to you today, and we thank you for your word. It is so powerful, Lord God. We just love to be able to dig into your word and to learn from your word. Lord, thank you. Thank you for preserving it from generation to generation. And Lord God, we, we are grateful for the Holy Spirit that illumines our mind to understand what your word has to say. We thank you that each believer has the Holy Spirit that lives within them that enables them to understand your word. Now, Lord, with humility today, I come before you as your messenger, and I pray that you would speak powerfully through me today, that your truths would be evident and that they would transform us. And so we commit it to you all, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at verse 1. This is the account of Esau, that is, Edom. And so just a little bit of background before we dive into this beginning part of this genealogy here. When you see the words there, this is the account of, that's the totally dot that we talked about when we started Genesis, the book of Genesis. There's ten of them all together in this book, and this is the ninth one. So we're just one away from, of course, the last one starts in chapter 37 and goes all the way to chapter 50. So it's a big one. But this one's only one chapter long. It's the account of Esau, that is Edom. And um, what we see here is some repeat, repeated structure that we've seen elsewhere. Esau's genealogy comes directly after Isaac's death, just like Ishmael's genealogy came directly after Abraham's death. So if you go back into chapter 35, there at the very end, uh, verse 29, it says, Then he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, old and full of years. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Let's talk about Isaac. And in Genesis chapter 25, verse 8, if you flip back there, you see the same thing with, uh, <clears throat> with Abraham and, and Isaac and, and uh, Ishmael. And so... Um, as the non-covenant carriers, Esau's genealogy comes before Jacob's, just like Ishmael's came before Isaac's. We saw that again in Genesis 25, verses 12 to 18. So God blessed Ishmael and Esau, even though they were not the covenant carriers. We know that. We know that, that Ishmael had 12 tribes, and it turned into 12 nations, uh, yeah, I don't think nations, but uh, 12 tribes, so different clans. The same thing is true with Esau as well. And while God certainly blessed Esau, we will see that uh, he married worldly wives 
and he moved to another land. And so our second point this morning is worldly wives. Look at verses 2 to 5 in Genesis chapter 36. This is what God's word says. Esau took his wives from the women of Canaan, Adah, daughter of Alon the Hittite, and Aholavama, daughter of Anah, the daughter of Sazon, uh, the Hivite, also Bozmath, daughter of Ishmael, the sister of, hold on a minute, this one's a tough one, Nevioth, there you go. Adah bore Eliphaz to Esau, Bozmath bore Reuel, and Aholavama bore Heush, Shalom, and Korak. These were the sons of Esau who were born to him in Canaan. And so Esau married Canaanite women. We see here the first uh, wife that's mentioned is Adah, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. Her name means ornament. And so in Genesis chapter 26, verse 34, Elon's daughter is named Bozmath. Whoa, what's going on here? Why is there this? Because we see Bozmath in this, in this but it's not Elon's daughter. We'll talk about that in just a moment. <clears throat> As we see in this genealogy, Bozmath is said to be Ishmael's daughter. The second wife that's, uh, that is talked about is Aholavama, the daughter of Anah, the granddaughter of Sazon, the Hivite. Aholavama means tent of the high place. Some scholars believe that her name also identified her occupation as a shrine prostitute, but that's not clear, and we're not told that in Scripture. The third one is Bozmath, daughter of Ishmael and sister of Nevaoth. Bozmath means spice. In Genesis 28.9, Esau married uh, Machaloth, Ishmael's daughter, and Nevaoth's sister. So again, we're seeing some differences here in these names. Maybe, um, maybe Adah just reminded Esau of spice, so he just nicknamed her or Bozmath in a different place. And so we don't know all of that, but what do, we, what, what do we make of the different names given in this genealogy for Esau's wives? Golden Gay points this out. And what the different accounts have in common may be especially significant. The nationalities of Esau's wives are more important than their names. Marrying Canaanite women is by implication an inferior move compared with marrying within the clan of Torah as Isaac and Jacob do. So while the names are not the same in the two lists of Esau's wives, the order of their nationalities remain the same, Hittite, Hivite, and Ishmaelite. That hasn't changed. Canaanite women would have been considered worldly in our modern culture. So they were worshiping other gods. They were worshiping idols. <clears throat> they were not worshiping the true and living God. And so our first principle today is this. God's desire is for us to be equally yoked. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, we see Moses giving the Israelites instructions about driving out the nations from the promised land. So this is coming in the future. This is what God's word says in Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 to 4. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. 
Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will completely destroy you. So the Lord, through Moses, is making it clear that the inhabitants of the promised land are worldly. They are worshiping other gods. So he says, don't associate with them. In fact, you're to completely destroy them. And so that's important. But Esau has already done that. He's already taken these Canaanite wives. Paul tells the Corinthian believers not to form binding relationships with unbelievers in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 and 16. We read these words. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and, and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. So Paul is not telling us to never associate with unbelievers, because how can we share the gospel with them, right? We're supposed to go and make disciples of all nations. He's not telling us never to associate with them, but Paul even tells uh, Christians to stay with their unbelieving spouses in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. He says, because of your example, they may come to know Christ. <coughs> So he's not telling us never to associate with them, but Paul is cautioning us to not lock ourselves into personal or business relationships that could compromise our witness or faith. And that's what Moses was saying back in Deuteronomy. He was like, don't marry or intermarry with them because they're going to draw you away from me. And so maybe you're ready for this next step today. It's the first one, and it's to evaluate my personal and business relationships to make sure I am not compromising my witness or faith. That's important. Esau had compromised his faith by turning his back on what his father and mother had modeled for him and pursued worldly women for his wives. And even though Esau compromised his faith, God still blessed him with children because God is gracious. And it goes back to our big idea today that God cares for all people. Even if they choose not to follow him, he still cares for them. He's still concerned about it. He created them, right? He's created everyone. He loves us with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness does he draw us to himself. That's his desire for every person to be in a relationship with him. He doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to him. And so what next we see are the sons of Esau. These sons were born in Canaan. Perhaps he had other sons born in Sire that we'll see in just a little bit. The order of the wives changed when the sons were announced. It's now Adah, Bozmath, and Aholivama. And so we see the sons. One born to Adah, Aliphaz, and his name means my God is fine gold. Interesting, right? My God is fine. Think about that. He's not really following the Lord. Aholavama's son is Reuel, and it means friend of God. I was like, that's fascinating. He knows who God is, right? We're all born with the understanding of who God is. We know who he is. It's whether or not we're following him. Then the three sons born to Bozmath were Yeush, which means assembler, Yelam, which means concealed, and Korak, which means bald. Poor guy. 
wonder if he lived up to his name. I'm not sure, but maybe he was born without hair. Who knows? What we see next in the narrative is the migration of Esau to Zaire. Let's look at verses 6 to 8. This is what God's Word says again. Esau took his wives and sons and daughters and all the members of his household as well as his livestock and all his other animals and all the goods he had acquired in Canaan and moved to a land some distance from his brother Jacob. Their possessions were too great for them to remain together. The land where they were staying could not support them both because of their livestock. So Esau, that is Edom, settled in the hill country of Zaire. So we see in verse 1, Esau, that is Edom, and then in verse 8, Esau, that is Edom. It's a nice little uh, inclusio there. So we see this second point as family flight or household hustle. You know, they had to get out of, out of the promised land. We see um, first Esau's household, his wives, Adah, Aholavama, and Bozmath. We see his sons, Eliphaz, Freuel, uh, Yeush, uh, Yelam, and Korak. And then it mentions daughters here, doesn't it? Now, we don't have any names. No names are given to us for his daughters. There's no number given. We don't have any idea how many daughters he had. And then it says members of his household. This wasn't his blood relatives, but probably included hired hands and slaves. And then we see Esau's possessions, his livestock, all other animals, all the goods he had acquired in Canaan. And then we see the narrator gives us the reason for the move. Esau and Jacob's possessions were too great. The land could not support the livestock from both brothers. Hamilton, in his commentary, says, Although Esau was outside the covenant promise, God's blessing extends to him in two ways. Children, as we saw in verses 4 and 5, and prosperity, verses 6 to 7. You see, God cares for all people. He was caring for Esau, even though he wasn't the covenant carrier. And then we see the final destination for him, the hill country of Sire. Here on the map, um, it's going to pop up. So um, you're not going to be... Unfortunately, I can't blow this map up enough for you to be able to see everything because then I can't get it all in there. The yellow circle is the hill country of Sire. And so up above the, the, like, the little blue Dead Sea in the middle, um, it, just, just east of that is where um, they were... Uh, where they were currently all at together. So they couldn't support all of that, and so he moves down to that yellow area. Uh, I hope that's helpful for you today. So um, this hill country, it lies southeast of the Dead Sea, south of Moab, and you can see Moab there in the red, hopefully. It's just above that yellow circle, an area which today represents the southern part of the kingdom of Jordan. So that's the modern country. Golden Gate says Esau was already living there, uh, in Genesis 32 to 33, which implies that his relocation took place during Jacob's 20-plus years in Haran. And so that's important for us to understand. Like, he's already down there because when we read in, in chapters 32 and 33, when Esau gathers his 400 men and they go up to meet Jacob, um, like in uh, Sukkoth, um, he's already coming from Sire. Because he says to Jacob then, he says, why don't you come back with me down to Sire? And, and we'll go together with you. And he says, no, I don't need your help. I'll, I'll be fine. He goes, well, then I'll just leave some of my men with you until you can come down with them to Sire. And he goes, no, 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 I don't need your men either. And, of course, uh, Esau takes his 400 men, and he heads back down south. And uh, Jacob heads east, doesn't he? Or is that west? I can't remember. I might be saying the wrong thing. Anyhow, he heads towards uh, the big body of water there. <laughs> is that east? Yes. I've got it all backwards in my head, I guess. Anyhow, 
So he heads towards Shechem, right? And all the different places over there, and to Bethel eventually. And so he doesn't go down south. So we already know that, that uh, Esau has already been living down there. And it, that's the sovereignty of God, isn't it? He knows that, that their two possessions, their livestock, are going to be way too much for that one section of land to handle. And so he's already moving him out <clears throat> into this hill country. Now, the eastern part of Sire was close to the desert. You're going to see a couple of pictures here. This is not like lush land that he's living in. He's not living in, in a really great place. So that's kind of the valley, and you see the Mount Sire. Now, this picture is from up on the mountain, Mount Sire, looking down into the valley. So those are just reversed pictures that you're seeing there. But it's rocky, and it's, it's not a great place to, to, you know, make, uh, to grow any kind of produce or grain. And he's got this livestock, and they're going to have to be going all over the mountainside trying to find good places to graze. Isaac's blessing of Esau was really an anti-blessing. If you remember, back in Genesis chapter 27, verses 39 to 40, we read these words. Your dwelling, this is Isaac talking to Esau, your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. It looks like he's true. That's right. <laughs> Look at this land. You will live by the sword and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke off from your neck. <clears throat> and so we see that this kind of blessing of, of Isaac for Esau has come true. He's living in a very desert-like climate. So God had to move Esau from the promised land so that Jacob could possess the land as the covenant carrier. So that leads us to our second principle today, that sometimes God moves people to accomplish his plan and purpose. Wolke says, With the migration of Esau from the promised land, the stage is now set for God to fulfill his promises to Israel, to Jacob. As I mentioned at the beginning of the message, I know that God moved me for two reasons, to use my gifts and abilities in a different location and to accomplish his plan and purpose in the previous location. Sometimes he has to do that. <clears throat> and perhaps you have, have experienced that in your own life. Maybe God is prompting you now to consider a move. It may be a move within the same company that you're working in. It may be a move to another town. The move could be to a different state. Perhaps God's calling you to move to a different company. Maybe God's calling you to move in, into ministry or missions. Those moves are not always for negative reasons but because God wants to accomplish his plan and purpose. And so maybe you're ready to take that next step today and that's to determine if God is calling me to make a move and then be obedient to that calling. So as we review today, do you need to evaluate your personal and business relationships to make sure that they're not compromising your witness and faith? And then the one we just talked about is God calling you to make a move. As a church, we also need to make sure that our personal and business relationships are not compromising our witness and faith. And what move is God calling us to make so that his plan and purpose can be accomplished? You know, it would be easy for us to connect with Esau, right? Because it seems like God blessed him and that his life was not as difficult as Jacob's was. We may not know the whole story of Esau from Scripture, though. So from the illustration I started with, Herschel York continues that, and he says this, In distinction to Esau, there's Jacob, God's favored one. What did Jacob get? He got a tent. He lived his entire life in a tent with his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham. He never had a house. They lived nomadic lives, always wandering around. Yet we live in an age of Christianity where we value Esau more than Jacob. <clears throat> we interpret the goodness of God more by the blessing of Esau than by the favor God bestowed on Jacob. 
If Esau lived today, we would put him on TV. He would sit there on the couch and we would ask him, tell us how God has blessed you and how we can have it as well. Jacob wouldn't be invited to go anywhere. Nobody would want to hear his story. Can you imagine him stepping or stopping by a television studio? You know, we're going to see in the coming weeks that Jacob, Jacob's life was filled with heartache as we follow his line through Joseph. It was going to be difficult for him. It wasn't going to be easy. And like I said, maybe we don't know all the story of Esau because it's not given to us in Scripture. Maybe he did go through some hard times. But as I was talking with Pastor Mark and, and some, another person this week about this message, I was like, you don't hear about Esau going down to Egypt during the famine. He's used to living in a desert climate, right? I don't know. Maybe he did go down there. Maybe he didn't. I, scripture doesn't tell us, but Jacob does. Joseph does. They all go down to Egypt during the famine. And so maybe, you know, we don't always connect with Jacob because we don't want to have to connect with the hardships and the heartache that he went through. And we would rather connect with Esau, who seemed to have a pretty good life and to seem to be wealthy and pretty well-to-do. And so we don't want to mistaken material blessing for spiritual blessing. And so I hope you're encouraged today um, as we uh, see that God is, is just this God of grace and that he cares for every person, whether or not they follow him. And so as the worship team comes to lead us in the closing prayers, the ushers prepare to take up the tithe and the offering, would you just bow your heads with me? Lord, we come to you today, and we thank you for this opportunity to just uh, to dig into your word, Lord God, to be taught through your word. We thank you for the principles that we've seen today, and pray that you would just help us to apply those to our lives. Lord, we just pray that you would help us to be equally yoked in both our personal and business adventures, Lord. And that, Lord, if you're calling us to make a move, that we'd be obedient to that as well. Now, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would just move in hearts and minds as we worship you. And Lord, we pray, too, that you would bless the tithes and offerings for your honor and glory. We just ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.